says tech can't be human? All the lessons learned from that intrusion, and you can do a lot of great things with that. You can see how a threat that hopefully hasn't targeted you accomplished their objectives, and then you can build some new detections and improve your security architecture based on that type of report. Welcome to the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast. We get it. Another vendor running another podcast ad, trying to get you to check out their product. Instead of explaining to you what our amazing sponsor, Exonius, does, we've brought in an Exonius customer to fill you in. Take it from Jason Loomis, Chief Information Security Officer at MindBody. The sheer excitement of my team to have visibility into what's in our environment and have it all in one location is just I can't express how important that is for us. Want to learn more about how MindBody enhanced their asset visibility and increased their cybersecurity maturity rating with Exonius? Watch the video at exonius.com forward slash MindBody. That's A-X-O-N-I-U-S dot com forward slash MindBody. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again in the studio today. We brought with us a special guest. We're going to be talking a little bit about intelligence. And to kick this topic off, we've brought in Brian Kime. Brian is VP of Intelligence Strategy and Advisory at Zero Fox. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Ron, Chris, thank you so much for having me. Oh, we are pumped to have this conversation. We met in 2019. We met at the Threat Intelligence Summit with Sands, had some great conversations about Intel at that time. And coincidentally, that is when I really started speaking and doing a lot of the talks and outward communication for our community. One of the things that we talk about quite often in intelligence is this concept of feedback. It's part of my framework, the easy framework. It's mm -hmm. part of a lot of the things that I talk about, but it seems like people kind of put feedback on the back burner. But this is one of the most important things from my perspective. When it comes to intelligence, why would you say feedback is important to you? Well, we have to understand what is valuable to our stakeholders. And it's easy for us just to shoot an email over with some statement about a threat. And we don't know if there's any actions have been taken to reduce risk if we don't get any kind of feedback. And from our perspective, from my perspective as an intelligence professional, no news is actually bad news in that case. Mm. If no one is telling me that, yeah, we took some action and we reduced risk, you know, we changed some security controls, we talked to someone else and we did something then it's hard for us to understand if we're doing something that is adding some value or if we're just generating noise. So let's dive into it then. Chris just mentioned feedback. We all really know that feedback is really important, but there's also a lot of things that go into intelligence, building security programs. Before you hit the feedback stage, I would love to hear a little bit about what it is that a VP of intelligence strategy is really laser focused on. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing day to day and what makes it so impactful. Yeah, sure. So in my role, I'm really working across the company to make Zero Fox much smarter 
about intelligence. So I do a little bit of internal training. I also own the company's competitive intelligence function. So I have a competitive intelligence manager with his eye 24-7 on our competitors so that we can make better, faster product decisions so that our sales team can counter and stay ahead of the uh, competitors when they're in a competitive scenario. Also, I find our subject matter experts within the company, aka thought leaders, and I get them out into the public wherever it's appropriate. So if a journalist or a podcast like Hacker Valley Studio has a particular need to bring someone on to interview for some topic, maybe it's ransomware, maybe it's the automotive industry, or it's the Uber breach that was just announced. I have the pulse on the whole company and all of our experts, and I can say that this person over here is who you want to talk to, and I help them get their voice out there in the public, in part to build their own brand, but of course to build the credibility of Zero Fox as a legit tier one type of intelligence company. Let's go back to the beginning. I know you got your start in the intelligence arena, much like myself. What inspired you to continue down the intelligence route. A lot of folks go from intelligence and they pivot into other aspects of cybersecurity or even different types of intelligence. What kind of kept you on the straight and narrow when it came to intelligence? So I enlisted after 9-11. I was in my fifth year at Georgia Tech and I had never considered serving my country before. Went and enlisted in the U.S. Army Reserve after I graduated in 2002. And I went reserve because, you know, we kind of kicked the Taliban's ass and I thought like, this is going to be a short-lived thing. <laughs> and, and I was like, I'll serve, but you know, I'm going to go to grad school and all this stuff. And so I started doing the grad school thing. And of course, this wasn't a short-lived war. So while I was in grad school, I thought this is pretty cool. Maybe I could do even more than being an enlisted soldier. So I signed up for ROTC and I had been assigned to an intelligence unit in the Atlanta area, but I was not an intel analyst, but I had you know, started to talk to these officers, warrant officers, NCOs and stuff. And I thought like, this is pretty cool. I should look into that. And I was lucky enough to branch as a military intelligence officer in 2006 and went back to being a regular reservist after my military intelligence basic officer leadership course, and then got hired on actually as a federal civilian with the government accountability office. Didn't really like the pace of being a federal civilian. So then I took some active duty tours and one of those culminated the last one I went overseas to Afghanistan and I got attached to army special forces and I helped support the village stability operations thing and all these little jobs over time. I started to really enjoy the intelligence thing and started to think, what could I do with this in the private sector and, and start to settle down really and get a real job. And in one of my other active duty tours about 2008, 2009, I was basically an IT manager for a SCIF. SCIF, if you're unfamiliar, Sensitive Compartmented Information Facility. It's where we have all the top secret networks and stuff. 
So basically, I was the guy that helped along with the contractor keep all the systems, both the networking gear and the individual analyst workstations, you know, up and running. And like, man, maybe I can put intelligence and kind of IT stuff together and do some cool things. And thankfully, some people are already starting to do what we're calling cyber threat intelligence today. I was really fortunate that I live in Atlanta and SecureWorks, one of the largest managed security service providers, is headquartered out of here. They had a need for someone like me, and I got hired full-time at SecureWorks as a, originally my first title was IT security Intel analyst, which is kind of funny considering what we call it today. And then, and then I've moved on, you know, other roles within SecureWorks and elsewhere. And I've been able to realize that like merging of the IT stuff and then in intelligence and I hope move things forward. And now that I'm here at ZeroFox, I think I am helping one of my peers, AJ Nash, he leads a big bulk of our intelligence capability here. We have some intelligence capabilities elsewhere in the company and like, you know, bring all these things together and really start pushing our customers and pushing the security community in general towards more intelligence driven security. Mostly what I see even today still just feels like marketing driven security where people are buying the latest and greatest tools, but there's no strategy really beyond those purchases or the opposite end. It's the YOLO sec. I'm stealing that term from Kelly Shortridge because I think it's brilliant, but YOLO sec basically just like not care. Like no one's going to breach us. I mean, what do we do that's important, you know, and throwing all caution to the wind. So Hopefully, you know, when I retire, whenever that happens, we actually do have intelligence-driven cybersecurity kind of across the board, and even small and medium-sized businesses are benefiting from the value of threat intelligence. I would love to hear where are we at with that? Because when I first started in cybersecurity and learned about intelligence, I was actually working with Chris. I was an offensive operator for a while, and then me and Chris started working together, and he was telling me about all of the intelligence capabilities that threat intelligence could bring to security operations. And I thought to myself, this is amazing. Who has all of this information about threats out there? And I learned that there's no one source I can go to. Like as someone that is spending money on behalf of my organization, I would imagine that working with a threat intelligence provider would give me all the threat intelligence I need. But I know it's not that simple. So I would love to hear where are we at today? Where are the challenges? And also, what opportunities are we seizing on? Oh, man, that's a great question. So <laughs> this can go in <laughs> different directions. <laughs> <laughs> After five minutes, make sure that I, I'm still on track here because this, this could go off in a tangent. So when I talk to folks, and I did this at my talk recently at the FSISAC European Summit, is let's not talk about what we talk about in the military, like human intelligence or human or signals intelligence or SIGINT, like that. Like those things don't really matter in the private sector. CISO doesn't care. The board of directors doesn't care, right? But if I'm looking to help people build and mature an intelligence capability, think about three places where I'm going to get my data, my intelligence. So internal data, we'll start there because I think this is the most important. 
So unlike in a lot of different scenarios, the threat's not leaving behind a whole lot of information. But in cybersecurity, if you get phished, the threat is sending you their tool, their, the links to all their infrastructure. It's all right there. They do a vulnerability scan and they're leaving artifacts all over your network. And if they do breach your network, they're leaving tons of artifacts everywhere. I mean, all your logs are showing exactly how someone moved through your enterprise. That's just tremendously valuable. It's the most relevant raw intelligence that you have, and you've already paid for it. It's all your systems are logging this all the time. So Mm -hmm. use that internal data first and foremost. Secondly, then, there's just so much data that's just freely available out there on the internet. So easy to collect. Take advantage of that. I mean, you have vendor blogs that will walk through an intrusion that their company responded to and all the lessons learned from that intrusion. And you can do a lot of great things with that. You can see how a threat that hopefully hasn't targeted you accomplished their objectives. And then you can build some new detections and improve your security architecture based on that type of report. And then you have just people on social media just vomiting up great nuggets of data all the time. You have some independent researchers that will post hashes where they can go grab the malware off a of virus total and check it out and implement any kind of technical things in your own environment. So there's so much data everywhere there. And then lastly, when you still have gaps in your intelligence collection plan, then go seek out vendors. That should be like third in your order there. Of course, if everyone should be looking out for phishing, domain type of squatting and things like that, and that's going to be really hard to get good coverage on from your own internal data, right? Unless your own employees are seeing like every fish and, and every domain type of squad out there, most of the time, it's your customers and partners that are going to see these domain type of squats and these phishing things. So you do need to go in that case, to a third party that is monitoring for those things, that adds visibility. So that's one answer to your question. The other one was, I think, referencing small and medium-sized businesses. And they don't have big security teams like the big banks or big energy utilities, big oil companies, and things like that. So how do we get threat intelligence into their hands? And there's a couple ways. So when I was at Forrester, so before ZeroFox, I was the analyst at Forrester that led all the threat intelligence research. And I got asked this question, you know, how does SMBs get the value of threat intelligence? And I always wanted to do some research to see if I could use teams like the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Center and Cisco Talos, Palo Alto's Unit 42, and all the other kind of product intelligence teams within the cybersecurity vendors as some kind of proxy for which vendor should an SMB buy? Should they buy Palo Alto firewalls or Cisco firewalls? Can they use Talos versus Unit 42 as somewhat of a proxy for the efficacy of those tools? I never had the time or honestly the access maybe to figure out that answer. I don't know if any of those companies would have let me that far under the hood where I could have definitely said that one vendor Intel shop is better than another. But then my company is out there in the gray space between threats and our customers. And 
not all small businesses are going to use and can operationalize your APT fuzzy snuggly duck type reports. Right. They may not even have a CIO and let alone like a CISO and security staff and threat intel analysts. But what we find, especially in things like professional sports, is you have effectively a small business by employee headcount and a huge like global brand. And that global brand brings in the scammers and the fraudsters. Your customers then get targeted that much more because of your success. So Champions League is on in Europe right now. And since I just left Madrid, I was there in Madrid when Real Madrid was playing Leipzig in the Champions League. And so just by virtue of Madrid being successful, getting into Champions League, their fans are seeing more counterfeit ticket scams. Mm. And for small companies like that, like we're a really good vendor to come in, apologize for the product pitch, but there's no way that a small business can deal with the magnitude of these fraudsters and scammers on social media and phishing and whatnot. But if you are a large enterprise, there's a few that I can think of out there that are capable of doing this. When you get to the maturity level where you really are embedding intelligence into your security operations, into your security architecture, all the security decision-making, you can start actually dropping like the big vendors that sell your APT fuzzy snuggly duck type of reports. And instead of buying someone else's finished intelligence, you buy the raw data necessary for you to track your own threat landscape and produce your own finished intelligence. And when you get to that maturity level, you start seeing potential breaches in other parties, like your suppliers. And I know there's a big retailer out there. I don't want to share their name because the research that I participated in with this retailer, the retailer's name was not made public. So, But I can assure you it's one of the largest ones out there. And their threat intel program was so mature that they were able to defend many of their suppliers as well. So if I can remember the stats from a couple of years ago, in 24 out of 30 cases that this threat intel team at this large retailer discovered indicators of a breach at a supplier, they were able to get in touch with that supplier, get someone knowledgeable on the phone, plead their case, validate their identity and everything, and then help them identify where that threat was, and they were able to prevent ransomware breaches in those cases. And so all those vendors that have some of the retailer's customer data, maybe employee data and like that, that prevented that retailer from having to do any kind of breach notifications himself. They didn't have to fire the supplier, go and find a new one because of this. There were no lawsuits involved. It was truly proactive, reducing risk across their own company and their customers, but also their suppliers. And so hopefully to come back full circle on this question is that's what I would love to see become the standard that big corporations incorporate threat intelligence to the level that they can start to actually extend that value into their supply chain. And that way, the whole system becomes more resilient more secure. Through a combination of technology innovation and human ingenuity, NetSpy helps organizations discover, 
prioritize and remediate security vulnerabilities. For over 20 years, the NetSpy cybersecurity experts have helped some of the world's most prominent organizations, including nine of the top 10 U.S. banks. Visit netspy.com forward slash HBM to learn more. That's netspi.com forward slash HBM. Thank you, NetSpy, for sponsoring this episode. I love that. And that's a great positive story for people to take with them. One mm -hmm. of the issues that I've seen in my time in threat intelligence is this idea of prioritization and really measuring your sources. Because like you mm -hmm. said, there is a lot of information out there. There's a lot of information out there in open source. And there's a lot of vendors out there that are pushing finalized intelligence products. How does a team really measure the efficacy of a feed, the efficacy of certain data that they collect and utilize? What are some of the tendency folks use to really get to the signal that's within the noise? Most people don't really track <laughs> the ROI of their intelligence vendors, frankly, or they just track the wrong things. Coming from the Marine Corps, you probably use similar terminology, you know, measures of performance versus measures of effectiveness. Right. So for most people, they're really only tracking those measures of performance. Like, did we get IOCs from this vendor? Like, yeah, we got maybe 1 million this month, 2 million the next month, whatever, right? Data is flowing, things are working, but that's not really adding a whole lot of value. So in addition to some of the other earlier stuff I mentioned from my FSISEC Europe talk, I also did do a few minutes on threat intelligence metrics. And like I said, yeah, I break them down into measures of performance, measures of effectiveness. Those APT fuzzy snuggly duck style reports are great. But frankly, I think a lot of us in the threat intel community kind of write for each other a little more than writing for our security decision makers. <laughs> and so simply the number of reports that you download from a portal, it's a measure of performance. Things are happening. But what makes intelligence effective? And some examples of some good threat intel metrics are things like the number of new detections that you've created in your environment based on threat intelligence. So you get a good assessment, a good profile of a threat. You hand that to your threat hunters and they go and they find in the environment where they can detect that threat based on your assessment. And then detection engineers, maybe they're the same person as your threat hunters, go and write new detections. They make some correlation rules in your SIM. Maybe they do some clam AV rules or snort rules, YAR rules, whatever format they're using. And push those down into your security controls. So now you're able to detect other threats you were not able to detect before. So we're actually improving our prevention and detection capabilities from that threat intelligence. Another good metric is incidents discovered via threat intelligence. So let's say all your controls failed and your data was taken and it ends up in some underground forum and some threat actor that stole it is offering it for sale. If you've got a vendor out there that has placement and access in these underground forums, then that intelligence vendor might be your IDS right there. They may come to you and say, hey, we, <laughs> you know, we saw this data in this forum. Does it belong to you? <laughs> and sometimes that happens there. So 
in that case, you're able to start the incident response and the breach response process before Brian Krebs gets on it and writes about you on his blog. Moving kind of down, adversary dwell time, I think is a really useful metric. Effectively, we're trying to shorten the time when a threat gets first access to your network and when they get detected by whether it's a security control, whether it's a vigilant user, or that data is in that underground forum. We want to shrink that. And if we're applying threat intelligence well, we have controls, detections throughout the environment that threat intel has influenced, and we're able to detect lateral movement earlier. We are able to go find exfiltration tactics, write rules and detections for those things, and reduce the amount of time that a threat actually has to achieve their objective. So you reduce adversary dwell time. You also will reduce your mean cost of breach. We obviously want to reduce the cost of breaches. And then at the end of the day, what we're trying to do as threat intelligence professionals is improve security decision-making. So this one's tough. It gets back in the feedback we talked about briefly earlier in the podcast, where I need to know what folks are doing with my intelligence. And so at the end of the day, if stakeholders are making security decisions based on intelligence that I'm providing, that's a really good measure of effectiveness. And I want to be able to count that to add a tick mark every time someone makes a good decision, whether it's that SOC analyst that escalated an alert that needed to be escalated or resolved an alert that was safe to resolve, or it's that CISO that went to the board and said, hey, I need 10% more budget next year because of this forecast that shows threat activity is going to increase by so much money or whatever. All those security decisions that were influenced by threat intelligence. That's what we're going for. That's the hardest thing to track because it requires people to (laughs) talk back to us and often and tell us what they're doing and grade our intelligence. Anyone who's listening, hopefully you're taking some notes because these are great metrics Mm -hmm. to look at, especially if you're trying to build a threat intelligence capability increase your budget, increase your headcount for the team. Like all of these metrics were really great, Brian. And I got to ask because you mentioned a lot of technology solutions, a lot of security capabilities that an organization may have. But what about before intelligence is introduced into an organization? Chris always says intelligence should be leading security operations. But what about when you Mm -hmm. don't have an intelligence capability and you want to create one. How do you typically know that it's the time that you can create one, like you have enough technology and structure in place? And what is typically the first thing that an intelligence team member typically does when boots hit the ground? Mm. Most startups start building things, right? And they acquire what people call technical debt. When does anyone start to do security. (laughs) My opinion is they're starting too early. And that's how we end up with certain breaches where the security culture wasn't baked in from the beginning, right? Case in point, I guess, would be Mudge's testimony recently, where he's just pulling out all the skeletons in Twitter's closet and how admin access and things has just been given out like the entire like length of the company and no one's bothered ever coming and clean that up. So I think if you are intending to collect data from customers, which 
is there a company out there that isn't going to collect data from customers? Then you need to start considering privacy and security from the start. I think waiting till years down the road is going to make those things more costly to you and your customers. So going a little more tactical than simply trying to build a security culture from the beginning, I still think the critical security controls are really important and a really good framework for even smaller, you know, less savvy types of companies to use. And at the beginning of the critical security controls, it's always software and hardware inventory. If I don't know what I have, then I really can't do anything well in security. I can't do incident response if I don't know where my data is. And I don't really know what's important to my company if they don't have inventories, right? So if I'm the threat intel guy walking into, maybe I'm just a consultant walking in for one week type of engagement. I'm going to help this small SaaS company build a more intel-driven security program. They need to be able to tell me the technologies that they're using and what they're using it for. They can't afford to put security controls everywhere. They can't afford to monitor and log 100% of everything forever. Even though I do say that logging is still cheaper than time travel, it's just not feasible or reasonable for any company to retain logs forever. For privacy reasons, of course, you have to purge certain data. But tell me the technologies that are in use here. I can at least start to go and look at exploits for those technologies. And that's a pretty easy way to come in and on the tech side, really help reduce risk, right? If I can understand which technologies are the most important for this company, how they're generating value for customers, then I can start to look and help them prioritize their vulnerability management, which system should they be monitoring the logs for most closely. And it's those things that are driving value for the investors and the customers. Love it. The one thing that I've always found to be appealing about threat intelligence is it tells you where to go. It tells you where to invest, tells you what to look out for. It also tells you what you can do to enable other operations within security and even across the business units. Brian, I mean, really what you're talking about is a lot. You could put everything that you just talked about into a book and sell it. And I'm sure people would buy it because there's so (laughs) many things about threat intelligence that people, it's not that they don't know it. It's just that they don't necessarily know how to start or even to expand their programs. We're going to drop all your information and everything you have going on into the show notes so people can find you. But with that, just wanted to say thanks again for hopping on the mics with us. This was a great conversation. We're definitely going to have to bring you back for another one to go even deeper in the threat intelligence and all the other stuff that we have going on. But with that, we will see everyone in the next episode. If you found value in this content, it would mean the world to us if you shared it on social media, sent it to a friend, or talked about it over coffee. 